Neil Harbison was born without the ability to see color. Called achromatopsia, which is total color blindness. So I've never seen color, and I don't know what color looks like. The world through his eyes appears in gray scale. Television is still in black and white. Neil was interested in color, but he didn't want to change the way he sees. Instead, Neil designed a way to hear color. He does it with an antenna, which he calls an antennae, wired into his head. It's a color sensor that detects the color frequency in front of me, and sends this frequency to a chip installed at the back of my head, and I hear the color in front of me through the bone, through bone conduction. It looks a bit like the distinctive head plume of a quail. The antenna follows the curve of Neil's skull, and at the end, there's a sensor. It looks like a small webcam, but it reads the colors right in front of him. This is the sound of purple. This is the sound of a dirty sock, which is like yellow. This one. Neil has been hearing color since 2004. These tones have been in the background of his life. For so long that after some time, all this information became a perception. I didn't have to think about the notes, and after some time, this perception became a feeling. When I started to dream in color, is when I felt that the software and my brain had united. Moon Ribas is standing on a beach with the ocean all around her. Her eyes are closed. She tilts her head back and reaches her arms out to the sides, opening herself up to the world. And then she retracts. Her arms pull in, seeming to cradle something right in front of her. Moon is performing a dance called "Waiting for Earthquakes." In this piece, Moon is the dancer, but the Earth is the choreographer. For several years, Moon had implants in her feet, connected to online seismographs that vibrated. Whenever there was an earthquake, this is what I call the seismic sense. Of course, I had to get used to feeling all these vibrations constantly because the Earth is very alive and it moves a lot. In waiting for earthquakes, Moon takes what's happening inside her body, the Earth's movements, and interprets them for an audience. It felt like I had two heartbeats now, like my heartbeat and the Earthbeat. She says the technology doesn't stand in the way of her connection to nature; it brings her closer to it. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence. Who has it? Who wants it? And how to use it for good? Neil Harbison and Moon Ribas both grew up just outside of Barcelona. They were childhood friends who took very different paths to becoming cyborgs. Moon initially resisted technology, but started experimenting with wearable tech. As an extension of dance, Neil's interest came from wanting to perceive color for the first time ever. Together, they've spent years testing the boundaries of what's physically possible and setting the standard for everyone that follows. Today, they run the Cyborg Foundation, which they founded in 2010. It supports cyborg art, defends cyborg rights, and helps other people on the journey to become cyborgs. Neil and Moon, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now I know Neil. You've said in the past that you don't want to claim to be the world's first 
human cyborg, but you do consider yourself a cyborg. Yeah. Um, and you consider yourself also trans species. Yes. So what exactly does that mean? Not, not just in general, but what does it mean to you? To me, identifying as a cyborg is that I am including technology as part of my identity. I don't feel that I'm using or wearing technology. I feel that I am technology. So to me, identifying as a cyborg is simply that I'm including technology, in this case, cybernetics as part of my identity. And transspecies is that I feel that I'm not 100% human because I feel that having an antenna or having infrared and ultraviolet perception, which are organs and senses that are not traditionally human, makes me feel uh, transspecies. It's funny, as I'm talking to you, I mean, no one else can see this. We're on Zoom or whatever it's called, Riverside FM, and uh, you have an antenna attached to your skull. And I'm sitting here with headphones on, which I've literally had attached to my head for the last year and a half. It can't be long before these would be embedded or somehow they're embedded within us as well. Is it meaningful for you to draw a line between where man ends and machine ends? When it comes to the body, I don't think it's so relevant, but when it comes to perception, feeling the difference between brain and software, I think that's where the, the line has been more blurry and intense. And adding new senses, adding new perceptions of reality because you've merged with technology, that, that's what really changed my perception of identity. I didn't start feeling cyborg because I merged physically with technology. I started to feel cyborg when I felt that my mind had merged with technology and when I stopped feeling this difference between thought and software and when my perception of reality changed. So I think it, it really doesn't matter if you are connected to technology in an implant or an explant or uh, you use technology continuously. I think the, the difference is when you start feeling that technology is part of you, that's the point where I think identity starts changing. So, Moon, does the same apply to you? Uh, yeah, for me, it's even blurrier, I think. It has been changing because I had the seismic sense for almost seven years, but actually from two years ago, I took the implants out. Because sure. uh, we see it as a way of exploring reality. We use the word uh, enhancement, but our aim is not to enhance ourselves, mm. but simply to explore our perception of reality and sometimes maybe in Moon's case sensing earthquakes was interesting for seven years and then she needs to explore something else right now. Right. And this also made me question about uh, identity and if I was now fully a cyborg or not. I'm going to experiment later to have another new sense. For a while, I, uh, with Nia and Neil and I were talking now that maybe I was a phantom cyborg because I had this thing happened and when I took the implants out it was actually a very scary moment but I still feel the vibrations for some months even if I didn't have the implants in so I thought maybe I was a phantom cyber because I had this phantom effect and myself or yeah. she's a post cyborg because she's been a cyborg and now she's fully organic again uh, or maybe she's um, ex-cyborg I don't know <laughs> but, you could, but I think it's interesting to see how Moon has actually evolved, uh, whereas I'm I'm more of a classic cyborg. I've had the same organ <laughs> with the same antenna for 17 years, whereas Moon, she's been evolving through the years. In 2007, she had uh, a sense in her arms, then she moved, now it's explant. So she keeps 
exploring her relationship with technology in different ways. And why did you decide to remove them? I wanted a radical change. I guess it's researching always new new experiences. And I had the seismic sense for seven years and I felt I needed something extreme and new. And the most extreme thing I could think of was like to take them out, actually. A really good thing about the seismic sense is when I... I also get to perform waiting for earthquakes and when I do the performances where Earth is actually becoming the artistic part of my performances. So in this way, I'm trying to find new new ways of still doing that even if I didn't have the implants, still using Earth as a choreographer and doing the performances. But I think you removed them because you said you felt lonely as well. Yeah, exactly. Cyborg so, art is very lonely. It's an art that you are the only one experiencing it because you're the artist, you're the work of art, you you are the space where the art is happening and you're the only one in the audience. I'm the only one sensing the colors directly into my head. Moon was the only one sensing the earthquakes in her body. So cyborg art is a kind of art that only happens in the body of the artist and in a way it can make you feel a bit lonely and I think that was Moon's case. Hmm. Yeah, but I, I remember saying that sentence. It actually is like I want, I want to dance with other people, not just Earth, you know, because I felt like always waiting for earthquake, which I I love doing that performance, and I'm still doing it. But my aim this after the implants was to to share the stage with more people and trying to do this thing of to have other performers apart from from Earth and natural phenomena on stage. Actually. In two weeks, I'm going to premiere a, um, a stage piece. Okay. I'm dancing with a contemporary circus artist, uh, myself, and then we also going to perform with ice, blocks of ice on the stage. So depending on the temperature of the space, it will be melting sooner or later. So we, we were looking for different ways of putting... Earth itself and natural phenomena themselves on a stage and treating them as a as a, another performer. So in the future, imagining that there are more people that become cyborgs like you guys, is it a possible hypothesis that they will be equally lonely? Um, <laughs> Maybe. Actually, loneliness is a, is an issue no? now that... I mean, there's many people that feel lonely, even if they're not cyborgs. For sure. It's a thing that I think our society is doing because we don't need communities to survive. Right. By enabling your body to have implants that potentially are you know, Bluetooth enabled or internet enabled, you do allow yourself to be monitored more easily. And I can imagine in certain markets where there's already a huge amount of monitoring and data tracking and breaches in terms of privacy that it would be off-putting to go into that route. I can also imagine in a market like Denmark where actually there are quite good practices in place to respect data and privacy and everything else, it, it may not be such a concern. In conversations you have with people that come into the labs, are data and privacy topics, how do, how do people treat that or view that? Most people don't care, right? It's, it, it's, it's, ne- it's never a, a topic, never. And not even in my case, I don't, I don't care. But I understand that it could be a problem. We presented cyborg rights and that we should have the right to decide who or what is allowed to track us mm-hmm. or who is allowed to enter our bodies because we, we have an internet connection, we could be physically hacked. So all these new situations that, 
emerge when you merge with technology need to be addressed by governments and new laws need to be created. But we focus so much in the creation of new senses that we put this subject more aside and we, we really concentrate mostly in, in how we want yes. to sense reality. I, I think it's because it's very experimental. If everyone had it, then maybe it would be a problem, but now... It might be worse if no one wants to track you, maybe. I mean, uh, maybe it, it would feel, I would feel worse. You're lonely. <laughs> Sorry, just that Nilo is a very positive person, very optimistic. Whatever you think is something bad for you, he'll change it and he sees it as something has a positive outcome. Oh, well, that's great, right? We need more Neils in the world right now. <laughs> So Elon Musk is a very positive person and he's developing uh, Neuralink and I'm sure that you know he will come up with something that uh, that will be well marketed, well presented and could potentially help people that have been paralyzed in the past or help restore movement but could also be used for, for many other things. What do you think a person like Elon plays in this space? Do you think he has a, a good positive contribution to make to the, the world of cyborgs? <laughs> Oh, I, I hesitate that Neil wasn't going to be so positive then. He's a very different <laughs> yeah, person yeah. From, from us. I think we have very different aims, no? Very different He's aims. A businessman. Also, he hasn't done anything to himself, basically, uh, related to cyborg. Uh, he has done it to someone else, to an animal. And that's something that goes completely against our philosophy. Like in trans-species uh, philosophy, we, we are all equal. If he had done it to himself, uh, the implant... I would be more interested in him, but for now, most of us here in Barcelona are not really <laughs> fans of Elon Musk. No, we don't have okay. many rules, but this this ethical thing that we don't we wouldn't put sensors to animals or to babies or like everyone has to decide what organs and sensors for themselves they want to have. So where are we on the acceptance curve for the general public? <laughs> Mm, well, I guess now there is a conversation with people. In 2003, 2004, most people thought it was extremely strange and or people would laugh, whereas now people don't think it's a joke. They, they understand it and they have an opinion about it. I guess that's the difference. But still, I was expecting there would be many, many more cyborgs in the 2020s. In 2004, I thought that in 2009 there would be many cyborgs. It's still a very underground art movement right now, and only some people think that it might become a, a social movement, not only an art movement. Yeah, society takes a long time to accept changes. Right. I mean, there's still people struggling to accept to treat equally women and men or like people from different races. There are, of course, a lot of differences between the trans and cyborg communities. But in terms of wanting freedom over what happens to your bodies, do you see any parallels within your movement that are similar to the push for laws that protect transgender rights? Yes, I think that's the closest community that I, I, Lisa, that I feel mm. a connection with. It's, there's two things. It's the modification or the freedom of morphology, the freedom to decide what bodies we want to have. We both defend this freedom and this right. And then how we want to express our identity through these organs or senses. So I think identity and, and body is something that we think about in a daily basis, and that's 
the only community I think that that also we share this with. Mm-hmm. It reminds me also. I don't know if you know Genesis PRA. He was a singer of Psychic TV. He did um, a live project with his wife. Like they they're both dead now. But then they had this thing that he said, okay, when they loved each other so much that rather than, than having a child, they would become oneself, one another. And they got surgically modified and they also tried to mix some blood and they wanted to become the same person. However, whenever he talked, he talked like in plural, like if he was two people. And it, it was also like... Identifying his, himself not just one person or a man or woman, he was two people, and it it was also between life and art, no? So it's also like a, an artist that also explore identity and life and mixed life and art. Our aim is not only to modify our, our body, but but to modify our our mind. We are modifying our body because we want to modify our mind. Some people always say, "Wow, but like." To make this cut, to put the implant, but actually I did compare to some plastic surgery or yeah, some uh, other things that people did to the to the bodies. Like my my body modification has been so simple. It's, it's yeah, as Neil said, it's more about our perception and and the experience and how to design the perception of reality within the body. And it, and is there a market that's particularly progressive? Uh, artists are the ones that I think are mostly interested in experiencing or exploring different ways of seeing things. I, I mean, we see this as an art, the art of creating new senses, the art of creating new organs, and the art of designing your perception of reality. So art's aim is to change the way we see things or we think of things or we perceive things. And these senses literally do this. They literally change the way we sense things and we perceive things, but it changes our mm. reality. So we see it as an art movement. I think most people that will start merging with technology will be artists or people basically that are not afraid of modifying their bodies. Is there a country or nationality that's particularly progressive in that matter? Sweden? Practical implants, yes. Maybe Sweden, many people have implants for paying or for entering the subway or the metro system, the, the train system. We will see, I guess, countries where there'll be a, a large number of people merging with technology for practical reasons. But when it comes for artistic reasons, I think now, right now, here in Barcelona is where there's more people doing it because at least at least 12 or 10 artists mm. that have uh, merged with technology to experience reality in a, in a new way. What sort of implants have they had? There's Manel de Aguas. He has two implants uh, the sides of his head, it's like two fins, and it allows him to sense the weather in a very specific way. He senses the humidity, pressure, and uh, temperature of his surroundings. Wow. There is also Joe Dagny. He had two implants in his cheekbones to set, have echolocation, to sense what's around him. Kailandra has uh, developed the sense to feel cosmic rays. Pau Prats has developed the skin to sense ultraviolet levels. Alex uh, did a sense to feel the, the air quality, so mm-hmm. he can feel if the air quality is dropping or is going up. And now there's the latest one is Paul Lombarte, and he's developing a digital heart. So he actually has digitalized his heart already, and he has sold his heartbeats as an art piece. 
in the form of an NFT. So actually, the person that has bought his uh, NFT can access his heartbeat. So you can he can see live his heartbeat. How old is he? Eighteen. Oh, okay. Wow. So you got at least you got at least a seventy-year NFT. Well, there's offers now to buy it for. I think the last one was a thousand dollars. Trying to set, buy the NFT, so you can also alter his heartbeats by sending vibrations to his uh, body, and then you can see how you can alter his heartbeats. Wow, you could be responsible for his death. Yeah, but yeah, art can be dangerous sometimes. I guess you can see many performances where there's a risk, and in this case, it's a yes, it's a lifelong performance uh, and artwork that will die whenever the artist dies. So we're working with Marina Abramovich at the moment, doing the Marina Abramovich method on We Present. And um, as a performer, I mean, she's also over the years taken things quite to the edge, allowing people to cut her physically or whatever else in for the cause. Fascinating. Yeah, that's maybe the, a, a good comparison. It's uh, but it's taking performance into the twenty first century and bringing this live performance in in the blockchain, which is an indestructible. So he has committed his life to art forever now. This makes my heartbeat go faster, just to think about it. It is fascinating. I have to say, it is a little bit scary just to to imagine all the negative things that could happen. You know, an ex-lover could buy your heart and then seek revenge. Yeah, you can decide no, who buys your heart. Okay. Well, I bought his heartbeats and I sold to him access to my head as an exchange. Okay. I have internet connection to my head. So I can receive colors to my head over the internet. So if we ever have a fight, I can sell his heartbeats to someone else. No pressure. Wow. <laughs> and is there, I mean, is there a reason this is happening in Barcelona? Is it because of you guys? Neil, you're clearly pioneering in this space. Yeah. We have a lab here. We have a space where we, we collaborate with many people and uh, we create projects. So that's one of the reasons. But I guess in Barcelona also, there is um, a lot of art, basically, and artists, experimental artists, um, a connection with nature because most of these art pieces are a way of connecting to nature and we have Gaudi the architect that already did architecture connecting it with nature also not separating art from life Salvador Dali never separated surrealist paintings from his life his life was also surrealist so there are many references I think in, in art and I think it matches this type of art connects with Barcelona in a, in a very strong way. Within the lab that you just mentioned, is that a space where you're guiding people? So do you collaborate on, and advise and help? What form does the lab have? It's a, a very interdisciplinary space. We call yeah. it the cyborg bunker because it's underground. Sure. Very different people come. People that manufacture and know how to do software. Material designers. And then we have artists, artists in residence that come from now in, in next month a, a Japanese artist is coming to stay for two months after that a Serbian artist is coming to stay for a month as well so people come for a while and then we help them develop their own organ or sense and if it goes further then we work on the, having an implant and we also do surgery in this space who does if it's just a subdermal implant we do it with either nurses or biohackers. We have uh, some doctors that have done surgical procedures. On the piano. On the piano. We have a piano. <laughs> Sorry, on the piano. You literally do it on a piano. Yeah, we have, the... <laughs> we have a very long uh, piano, okay. like a grand piano. 
Is it part of? Is it sort of a ritual? Yes, we have this small piano, and it actually <laughs> Nick, it's playing calm music. When there's an implant, people can watch the okay. watch the implant uh, as a performance or as a ritual. Yes, come as on. an event, you know. I was, I was looking at Rembrandt's work yesterday in a museum here in Amsterdam. One of the uh, the exhibitions they have as part of the installation was a, a series of work that Rembrandt had painted depicting people watching operations taking place, particularly um, post-mortems. And for a lot of people, they would never have been able to see this sort of thing happening before. You're opening it up to the general public to see the the future again. Sometimes all this becoming a cyborg, so it feels that it can be very futuristic, but it can be going back to the past as well. Like, for example, these rituals of, of transforming yourself in some, somehow or trying to understand where, where we are by extending these senses. We are experiencing the primitive transformation of our species. What we're doing now is it will be seen in, in the future, I think, as something very primitive, trying to transform our species into something else. And I guess what we're doing now in the future will be much easier. It will be genetically done. We won't need all this technology. You will be able to genetically modify yourself and have new senses, new organs. Who's, who's documenting it? Cameras. It's filmed. Yeah, I think, I think you need an oil painter there just to do it, do it justice. Oh, well, there is. David, David Macho. Yes, there is, a ah, yeah. there is one. We can send you okay. the There is a painting with a sur- surgery on the piano. A Neil and Moon retrospective. <laughs> so, so what's your up- updated prediction then for when people will begin to explore in- embedded technology? Yeah, exactly. We used to, I used to say in the 2020s, but now I remember <laughs> saying the 2030s. I, I always imagine like these two types of future. One is like carry on like this, you know, that technology becomes really part of us. Um, and in the future, everyone will already have technology in them. And then I have this other thing of this other future that it's completely different, that suddenly, yeah, internet will break, that we won't fly anymore, you know, that we will live like our grandparents used to live, like a bit different, of course, because what happened to our lives will affect us, but we won't move that far, we won't communicate that much, the cities won't be that productive. I feel I have this, this, this future too in my mind. There won't be one future, there will be many futures mm. and there will be, that's the diversity that we will see, that there will be many different lifestyles, many yes. different ways of living and many different types of body. On your calendar of 2030, where will we be in uh, the next phase of uh, development? There will be a, at some point a cyborg clinic, in the same way that there's plastic surgery clinics or tattoo salons, there will be at some point cyborg clinics where all these people from different disciplines will will merge and will offer some kind of more official way of merging with technology. And I think that's that will be maybe a, a country that we haven't mentioned, uh, like a small unexpected country, maybe Iceland, maybe Monaco, maybe Ecuador, maybe, right. that will offer this type of service. And then maybe we will see people from all over the world traveling to this country to have this type of of surgeries, as it happened with uh, transgender surgeries at the very beginning, that people had to travel to different countries. We also think maybe like new universities or college degrees will come, no? For 
new organ designs, new census yeah. designs. Actually, in co- we were collaborating with university from Colombia, and the students they were doing a subject just in designing new sensors and new body parts. Yeah, so it might also become a, an art degree. Like there's graphic design, there is product design, there might be cyborg design or new organ design or new sense design, and that might help also normalize what we are doing. Thank you very, very much. It's super fascinating to catch up with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Neil and Moon for blowing our mind and expanding our senses, quite literally. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Bob Gilmartin. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. Thank you to our wonderful studio in Amsterdam, to Michelle at Center Sound. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do or don't listen. If you're enjoying the show, please follow us, rate, and leave us a review. And you can follow me on Twitter sporadically at DJ Bradfield. If there's anyone you think that we should interview, I would love to hear from you. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks.